This is the Asade Podcast Channel. Audio pills to get inspired. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. I'm very pleased to welcome you all to this uh, new, uh, this new uh, session of the Big Challenge uh, series. This series was uh, created for organizing debates about the challenges that society has. For instance, um, health, for instance, sustainability, education, and so. Today, the session is dedicated to inequality and its effects. And we have the great pleasure and the great honor to have with, with us uh, Branko Milanovic, who is going to have a conversation with Javier Solana, talking about something that is going to affect, and it's affecting a lot, uh, to the world, to the society, uh, that is inequality, the effects of the inequality. So uh, before giving the floor to Javier Solana, let me, uh, you know, everybody knows very well Javier Solana, but let me give you some important points of his bio. Javier Solana is actually professor at ESADE. He teaches to, in our programs, the MBA programs, the bachelor, the master's, and he is the president of the center, the ESADE Center for Geopolitics and Global Economy. As you know, he was minister of culture also education and foreign affairs in Spain. He was secretary general of NATO, and he was high representative of the European Union for common foreign and security policy. Today, Sadejo has organized this, uh, this session. I thank you, everybody, for being here, for coming to, the, to, the, to this, uh, to this uh, very interesting session, that, that this very interesting debate that we are going to have. And uh, Javier, the floor, is, the floor is yours. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Eugenia. And thank you very much to all of you for having uh, come to, to, to what would be, uh, to my mind, a very interesting uh, session. Uh, we're going to talk about inequality, Inequality is a topic of the moment, without any doubt. One of the one of the questions which concern more the thinkers and the, and the, something that it should be also resolved. So we have a challenge there, not only to understand it, but to see if we can give a solution to the problem. Now, in the, we have, uh, without any doubt, for me at least, uh, the personality which is more important nowadays on the question of inequality. Uh, Branko Milanovic, uh, who has been uh, in a study on, on this question for a long time. He was an economist at the World Bank. He's now at, uh, at the center in New York, which is devoted basically to inequality with the best data that exists in the world today to, to, to study it. And um, I think he has uh, come out with uh, the best description of the global inequality of today. Uh, I'm going to ask him a few questions. Uh, then we'll open to the public if you want to put some questions to Branko Milanovic, not to me. I, I mean, the, the, the protagonist today is not me. Say him, so look at him, listen to him, and don't waste the time listening to me. Uh, <coughs> now, uh, Branko, let's, let's go in. Thank you very much. Let's go start. Thank you. No? Okay, Thank Branko? You. Yes, let's go. Well, I, I have to tell you that he's a good friend of mine. So, uh, so we, we, we really know for a long time, and we are good friends. Now, Branko. Uh, the question of inequality has been uh, perceived 
by many, uh, but without having the possibility of uh, express really what inequality means. And I think that uh, when your book came out, not long ago, it's 2016, the, the, the second book, um, you were able to put some numbers on inequality and to fix some trends about inequality and to be able to look at from a global perspective. And I think that changed the analysis and the way we look at, uh, at the inequality today. So the book was uh, really breaking, uh, breaking space, breaking, uh, and today uh, Branco is, uh, well, he, he's, uh, he's fixed in New York, or fixed. He lives in New York, teaches in New York, but uh, he's, he's a citizen of the world, uh, really, because you've spent most of the time explaining all these things at, uh, at this moment at all the best universities in the world. Branco. Um, that perception that we have about that we are unequal, and you have put it some numbers. And I think this is the most important thing to get really into the, into the understanding and finding solutions to the problem. Um, for you, you talk about, if I talk about the elephant curve, uh, many of you will synthesize what is that, that curve, which is like an elephant and, uh, and give you the, the the, the perception of what is the evolution of equality in a certain period of time in the, in the global, in the global uh, scenario. Now, I have, we have the, the, the picture? Or? Yeah, I think it would, maybe it would come. Okay. In, in a minute. Branko, the time okay, is yours. Well, thank you very much. Well, not only just for a little bit, because then it would be yours again. But, uh, so first I would like Eugenia to actually help, uh, to, to thank you for inviting me here. Uh, it's always, of course, a pleasure, not my first time in Barcelona, it's a every time pleasure. Of course, this time was especially pleasure because New York was very cold, and when I came here, the temperature was 22 degrees Celsius, so it was very nice. Uh, so, what, and thank you to, to Javier for also inviting me. Now, let me just go and briefly explain what I think we will, might get, actually, the slide number 51, actually, it might come there, but basically what, you know, uh, what was new in the book and what uh, actually why the book attracted so much attention and so on is that, you know, we have had the numbers in, uh, uh, about inequality on individual countries, but we didn't have ever global inequality. And I will not actually bore you now with the details, but the difficulty of really having global inequality, which means inequality between all citizens in the world, technically speaking, is, is twofold. First, you had to head household surveys from all countries or most countries in the world, which is not easy because, you know, you have very poor countries that don't organize surveys on a regular basis. So you have to bring all of that together. And that's, I would actually help by being in the World Bank because you couldn't really do that elsewhere. And then you had to convert the incomes into something which is called international dollars mm -hmm. so that you make com comparable uh, incomes between India and the United States and Spain and, you know, South Africa and so on. And that's also very difficult because it depends on a very large <coughs> exercise, I will not talk about that, which is called the International Comparison Project, whose objective is to actually give price levels for each country, or for all countries in the world. So it's only when you combine these two things that you can at least technically think of creating global income distribution. So I actually did my first paper on that was in 1999. So it was a long time ago, almost, as you can see, 18 years ago. Mm -hmm. And then I kept on writing about that. 
And of course, we kept on getting better data. So the data that I have now are much better than what we had 20 years ago. And I think 20 years from now, we will have even much better data than today. But that was the, the, the technical problem. And then you just put all of this together and then you kind of study what happened in the world. Now, that too did not attract that much attention until the crisis happened. So I will not go now into why I think that inequality became such a big topic, partly because of the global recession. But let me explain what uh, the, the graph says, actually, because I think that's the, the key story. It's called, it's called the elephant graph because you can imagine a little bit like an elephant with a, you know, sort of trunk at the top. What it does is the following. If you look at the horizontal axis, you have numbers that go from 1 to 100. And these are the numbers which are, which are showing uh, a position of people in the global income distribution. So number one would be, which would be here on the, you know, left, at the, at the other, at the extreme left, would be the poorest one percentile in the world. So essentially you would be people who are less than one dollar per day, most of them Africa, some in India, and so on. So that's, you would have them there. Then the second percentile is just slightly better off, and so on, up to the number 100, which would be the global top 1%. So it's global. It's not the U.S. because U.S. would be part of that, or Spain would be part of that, but it's a global top 1%. And then what you have on the vertical axis, you have the change in real income, which I just explained how it is calculated, over the period 1988. And on this slide is 2008, but I have it also the update to 2011, or even now to 2013, although I'm not this sort of showing it yet because not, you know, not all the countries are included yet. So basically what it shows you is that you can first see that everybody is above the, the level of zero, which means that actually everybody gained in real terms over the last 25 years. doesn't mean that every individual in the world gained. It means simply when you put them like that in percentiles, each percentile was better off now, is better off now than like in 1988. And then, but you notice also that really the major gains, that's actually where the top of the gains is, is towards the middle of the income distribution, around between the 40th and the 65th percentile. And when you break down the people who are there, you find that they are really overwhelmingly, like 90% of them, are from what Angus Medicine used to call the resurgent Asia. Essentially, China, of course, is absolutely crucial there, but a little bit less, but still very important <coughs> is India, and then Indonesia, uh, Vietnam, as we were saying yesterday, with 100 million people, you know, Indonesia with more than 200 million people. These are really lots of people. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody from Indonesia is there because it is dispersed. You have very poor Indonesians who will be at the bottom of the global income distribution. Then you have those who will be in the middle. You will be those who are a little bit higher up. So they will be dispersed like the Chinese as well. But that's where the really, what you might call, Asian middle class is. And they have gained, you know, on this graph you can see like 80% or even in some particular uh, groups like Chinese have gained even three times or even four times the income which they had in 1988. But then the second group that attracts your attention is the group which is richer than this Asian middle class and where actually you see no growth at all. So when you break, as you see, this is this group uh, that is uh, like almost touching the point of zero. And when you break that group, you'll find that about 70% of people there 
are from what we can call the old OECD countries. So I actually take out the transition countries, which are also there, many of them. But just to make it very sort of clear, 70% of people are from the old rich countries. And then I would like to just point out to three countries that are actually very big and we, that are there. I'm not saying, I will have to explain, it's not the entire country. It's the lower part of those rich countries' income distributions. So essentially, it is really the bottom five, per, uh, five uh, uh, deciles of those rich countries. <coughs> so lower parts of their distributions. It could be lower part of the Spanish income distribution. And the three countries that are important are the US, Germany, and Japan, because they are very big. Overall, there are half a billion people. And half of their, half of their distributions really did not have much growth. We all don't know that for the United States. We know that Japan had practically zero growth over that period. And we don't know, we don't think of that, but Germany, in the lower part of the income distribution, had very little growth. It actually, I think, 7 or 8 percent on the lower, in lower decimals. So this is a, that issue that was pointed out, and I'll just stop in a minute, pointed out this contrast between the, the success of the relatively poor and very numerous Asian middle class and the lack of success of richer, uh, but within their own countries, relatively poor Western middle class. So that was this really the issue and whether the two things are correlated or whether two things are actually one is causing the other and so on. And then the last point is that you look at the very top of the income distribution and you find that they are the global top 1% as, as you can see that global top 1% had also very large gains. So to conclude, you can actually from this graph which actually summarizes the evolution of the last 25 years you can basically see the Western lower middle classes being squeezed between possibly people from Asia with whom they are competing for jobs, whether directly through outsourcing or through jobs indirectly through imports, being squeezed between that group and being squeezed from their own uh, top 1% who have done well. So that's basically the story of the graph, and I think actually that's why I attracted so much attention, because in one graph you essentially can tell a little bit of economic history of the last quarter century. And political also. And political mm -hmm. history, yes. Now, uh, I mean, to me, when I saw the graph for the first time, it took me a little bit of time to understand it properly. So look at it, and, and because the, the, the percentile of global income distribution, the x-axis, is very surprising. But you see that uh, the lower middle class or the middle middle class in the rich countries are uh, down, but uh, the, the income is 70% in higher than others. So really we are poor or we're middle class or lower middle class in our own country, but you compare with, uh, with China, with the poor in China, you see the other side. No? You had the, the China uh, when they have, uh, uh, they are in the 25, 35% of the of the global income distribution, so it's a, we are comparing. When, if, if you were to, to 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 say, well, we are suffering in the seventy five percent after the crisis because the poor in Italy, in 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 in, in, uh, in China and India are, are are winning. So, yeah. and what I was trying to to tell the Branco this morning is that uh, the, the the politics today. It seems that we have, 
to compete or to fight between people who live in the 75% or higher income with people that are coming up from poverty in the, in the 25. So it's a very unfair battle, unfair morally and unfair uh, from the point of view of, uh, of uh, politics also. So, uh, and the second thing I would like you to do, I, mean, I would like you to insist on that because this is very, very important for when we are talking from, from here, from, okay, uh, yeah. from a developed country. No? Now, the second thing is that uh, as you see the lower, the lower part of the, of the curve, uh, this middle class, uh, this is very important because the people of the middle class don't feel satisfied, quotation marks. Um, democracy suffers. At the end of the day, democracy is based on a middle class which are satisfied or are relatively happy. If you have uh, all the problems of populism and all that come from middle classes, which uh, is history. Uh, so th these, these things are here. And uh, the beauty of the curve, as, uh, his curve, is that uh, you can spend hours uh, trying to look at it from different angles and you get a lot of uh, understanding. So, Devote a little bit more time to the curve. To the curve. Yeah, you're letting me, before I do that, let me just say one thing that actually, uh, <laughs> I've become recently, because I, I, you know, the curve has been quoted so much time and so on, so I've become recently more reluctant to do it because, you know, the book, it has about 300 pages. The curve <laughs> appears on page number one, <laughs> you know, and it seems to 90% of people think that the entire book is that curve, you know, and there is much more in the book than that curve. So, but, uh, uh, but it is, of course, an important curve, so I'm still happy that people, maybe they come to page two and then stop, you know. <laughs> Uh, but you know what? Actually, what I think is interesting, and what Javier said, is the, fo the following thing. Just think of this curve for a minute. That uh, you don't know what it is, so you just say it's one country. Let's suppose we don't know it's the world. <laughs> the interesting part: if it was one country, you would say, "Okay, do I like this kind of uh, development or not?" You would say, "Well, it seems reasonably good. People who are poor." who are like in the middle, they have actually now really done very well. They doubled, tripled, quadrupled their incomes. Uh, people on the top, they really earned maybe too much. And of course, there are some who lost, but you know, these people who lost are not really poor. They are at the 80s, 70s, 80s percentile of the world. So it seems more or less, it is a reasonably good picture. The problem, of course, it's a reasonably good picture if the world were like one country but the world is not one country. And I think when people tell uh, the, the lower middle classes or the middle classes of the Western world that they should actually not complain, and actually there are some people like Ezra Klein in the US who said that because they, they have sort of helped or allowed the rise of people who are much poorer than them. I think politically, obviously, this goes nowhere. It is a total sort of waste because we are organized politically in nation states, so maybe that lower middle class or middle class people in France or Spain or Italy might actually be happy that somebody in Asia is getting better off, but they're not that happy to lose their jobs to them. So I think politically, the, the contrast there is that we have, of course, the world organized economically, more or less in a global sense, but political decision making is made at the, at the national level. And then people who are relatively well off, as Javier said, at the 70th or 80th percentile in the world, the fact that they didn't have growth, it is not 
a solace or consolation or justification for them that somebody in Indonesia did very well. They actually are unhappy, especially unhappy when they see themselves falling behind their own uh, top 1% or top 5% and so on. So I think in that sense the graph also illustrates this. And it's also what is interesting is that normally when you look at the similar graphs, they're actually technically called growth incidence curves, you find in the individual countries, and of course I have graphs for Spain like that for a crisis now, which are either that essentially there is an increase in inequality, so that graph goes up, uh, you know, starts going uh, sort of uh, upward sloping because the rich people gain more in percentage terms, or the graph is downward sloping if you have a decline in inequality. But it's very unusual to have this kind of a graph. And uh, uh, in, a, in a sort of a, if it was one country, that would essentially mean, and actually I don't know if there, I actually found Turkey to be relatively similar to this graph. And why? Because you had at the very top increased in incomes at the very top of the Turkish income distribution, then the squeeze of all that sort of Kemalist bureaucracy and uh, uh, liberal professions that actually did not do very well, but then who has done very well in Turkey is really sort of lower middle class of merchants and small, you know, small merchants, traders and others, mostly from, from Anatolia elsewhere. So Turkey has somewhat similar uh, shape. But it's very seldom that you find a shape like that in individual countries. So there, I think this is ba the basically this, this contrast. And then, of course, last point is that really uh, an important issue is do we, can we really say that the, the absence of growth of the middle class in the rich world, world is caused by the growth of the middle class in Asia? And if so, what will happen in the next 20 or 30 years if similar developments after China continue with India, with Indonesia, with Burma, with possibly Ethiopia, and so on. So that, I think, opens a big question of the adjustment of the rich world to the effects of globalization. Okay, uh, uh, Branko, uh, morally, I think that we have to accept that the speed at which we growth, uh, growth, it cannot be at the same speed that uh, the countries or the people that come from poverty. So we are in the middle class and I think we have to, to grow less rapidly than the, the one who comes from Syria up. Now, if you look at the, at the curve, you see at the very right, you see the 1%, the famous 1%. And one, I mean, I wonder myself, if we could resolve this, if we can elevate the, the dip, the dip in the picture, which is the middle class, which is uh, in, the, in the developed countries, by making a better distribution of the global rich. Problems that has. The global rich are not uh, redistributing nationally, but the adverse interest they are national. So, and the problem is global. Uh, how can we uh, use this 1% uh, uh, global? the amount of money that they have and, and distribute it in a manner, I mean, a, a fiscal, a global fiscal mechanism. Is that uh, something that uh, it could resolve the, the, the stream right of the curve? No, you, you, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't think it would, actually. And let me say, and the reason why I don't think it would, because we don't have global uh, uh, means of redistribution. We essentially have national means of redistribution. 
So if you were to really put it in, in very abstract terms, we essentially have uh, obviously global economy now more and more, but the cost of that economy for the people who are affected are borne by nation states, because that's where people actually have to complain, essentially. Uh, because there is nobody globally, there is no global governance, there is nobody globally to, co to, to confront that. So that's a little bit of a, of a tricky issue because maybe in the past when the economies were not so open as now, even like 30 years ago, maybe 40 years ago, uh, uh, the, the uh, national economic problems were solved at the national scale. But now global economic problems are actually the costs or, of losers, have, so to speak, have to be solved nationally. So I think actually eventually it's still it's a nation, nation state that has to, to, to deal with these issues. I want also to say something historically that uh, I, I said this in my book and I think it can be sort of reasonably proved that this was the, after the Industrial Revolution, this was the greatest reshuffle of individual incomes in history. Because what happened is that you had large masses of people who have actually leapfrog in the distribution. You take people who were like, suppose, in the third, third decile, third uh, decile in China, in the urban areas, and they were at the point of, let's suppose, I think if I remember correctly, 34th global percentile in 1988. And then they end up the period by being at the 60th percentile. So they have actually jumped in a position of over like one and a half or two billion people. So this is a huge reshuffle of, of relative incomes. But we also have to acknowledge that what is now happening with deindustrialization in the West happened with the deindustrialization of Asia, and in particular India, with, with the first industrial revolution, where actually British textiles totally destroyed Indian textiles and led to a massive increase in unemployment uh, in India. India had actually manufacturing production that was, I think, like 15% of GDP. And when the British textiles went in, that went to 3%. So, you know, these global shifts are, of course, of striking magnitude, but it's still not something that, is, that we have never actually experienced historically. Although, obviously, this is much bigger now because there are 7 billion of people now, and in those days they were like probably 1 billion and a half or so. So, uh, but to, to answer your question, actually, just simply, I, don't, I think that really nation states still has the obligation to deal with it. Nobody else can do it. So this is, a, this is a quite a statement, because uh, <laughs> if we have a global problem that has to be resolved by the nation state, I, I think that we should be a little bit bolder and uh, go to or begin to think about some kind of uh, global taxation or something of that nature, which uh, which uh, will will help that not all the, re the redistribution has to be national. I don't know if that is, is, is in your mind. Uh, I'm, you know, what I, I don't see, uh, I mean, let me just put it like this. I don't see willingness in the European <laughs> Union of the North to ha have the South. I just cannot see the willingness to redistribute and from whom, uh, you, you know, even that 1% that actually has lots of its income uh, in tax havens and very difficult to tax and all of that, has, uh, how should I say, a national connections. So they would be very unwilling, obviously, to be taxed. And they would be probably 
exercising political power in their own countries not to be taxed. So I, I'm actually, I think that um, to, to, to explain what I believe, why I believe that this is really still nation, nation state role, I also believe that uh, one of the ways of trying to solve this issue is to pay much more attention to, the, to what they call the equalization of endowments that people have. You know, and endowments are of two kinds. We mentioned that this is actually, one is human capital, or actually basically labor skills and so on, and the other one is financial capital, or just ownership of wealth, whatever. So what has happened in, in the West, and actually in other countries, but in the West is striking because it is a rich part of the world, is that the concentration of wealth has remained extremely high. We have what is called the Gini coefficient, that actually can go to a number 100, which means that one person has the entire wealth or income, but in most rich countries, the, the Gini coefficient of wealth is 90. It's just an unbelievable number, because basically 30% of people have zero wealth, and then you have the middle class that goes all the way to 95th percentile that has essentially housing, and then you come to financial assets. And this is really about 5% of people. And it's very heavily concentrated. So we have really done nothing in the last you know, 50 years to do any concentration on that. And where I think Piketty's book is important that if, and we have seen, if the share of capital income is increasing, because we have this now sort of a abundance of labor from China, from uh, you know, Asia, from the opening up of the former Soviet Union and so on, then the share of capital will keep on rising. If the share of capital keeps on rising, but the concentration of that capital is very narrow, then we would really have an automatic translation of that into higher inequality. And that, I think, is really a problem for dealing with inequality because we have an almost automatic process of rising inequality at the national levels. And that's why, to, to, just to complete, I would just say that much greater effort has to be spent, I believe, on, uh, how should I say, enabling the middle class or the lower middle class to actually have ownership. Where, where you know, even Margaret Thatcher, as you know, talked about yeah, you know yeah. people's capitalism. But in, for a while, people actually remember the Economist would publish okay distribution of shares in the UK and all that, and it was all forgotten. And actually, the concentration of capital ownership is yes, okay, very high. Now, suppose uh, uh, that uh, we are looking further in the down the this history, the coming years we have uh, situations in which uh, the world is being more protectionist, the globalization is going to be maybe a little bit less speedy or acceleration. Um, what can you expect from the, the changes which are taking place in the United States, in China, etc., to, to, to affect uh, <coughs> in the right direction, in a direction in which uh, a certain redistribution of wealth is being done and taking into consideration the people that uh, in the middle and in the, in the, in the rich countries, the, the lower, the deep. The, how do we deal with that deep? Because this, this deep, yeah. again, is the deep that, that produces all the disalignments in the countries and even makes democracy more fragile and populism. What type of social pact, global pact, or social pact, which uh, the old social pact is broken? The old social pact or the social democracy is broken. 
how we can recover another type of social pact with this knowledge that we have today, nationally and globally. What, what, what is the, the, the direction in which we should move? You know, we, we can actually, I think, technically speaking, if you look at this graph, we can move uh, in one direction, which is essentially saying, okay, we want to be protectionist, and so we want really basically to screw these people in the middle. So in the hope, which is probably vain hope, of helping a little bit those people who are really here at the bottom, who are actually richer but didn't have much growth. I think it's actually self-defeating, and I don't even think that this, this will happen. And the other possibility is that we could uh, try to redistribute income from that very top, which is really national top, towards that group which, is, which didn't see much growth, which are about 70 to 80 percent. It seems to me this is much more reasonable approach because it leaves globalization unaffected and put the onus of solving the problems at the nation, nation state and the national distribution. So I actually think that that's where, um, how should I say, that's where uh, maybe the welfare states did not react well in the sense that the problems due to globalization became much bigger, but their size and their reaction function was the same as it was before. So they actually did not uh, sort of realize that they needed to actually do something more. <coughs> and I think that's what essentially happened. And then we discovered when the, the, you know, we knew that inequality was going up, but I think it was discovered in the popular perception in the press and elsewhere with the Great Recession, when income stopped rising, in many countries went down, and then people actually started wondering, like, how is it that my incomes or my job is precarious and so on, but then we have this, particularly the US, <coughs> transfer of resources to the top, you know, bailing out of the Wall Street, and they have been making so much money in the meantime. So I think that was actually this trigger point for, for, for the increase, general interest in inequality. Okay. So that's it, where, yeah. Before I have I, 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 the, the floor for you, one question on the global institutions. I think here we have a global problem. We are doubting if it has a global solution or has to be a national solution. But we have very important institutions, the World Bank, the IMF, etc. What is the role of these institutions, which are in principle uh, in charge of global problems? And uh, it seems that they are not doing enough uh, to, to understand this question and to try to produce measures that could go in the right direction. I mean, the, we have a G20 uh, the day before yesterday, in, 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 last week in, in, in Germany. And you look, uh, you look that uh, uh, G20 memorandum or statement at the end, and it's very, very sad for me at least. First, they, 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 they don't say anything serious about protectionism. And second, they, 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 we know that this is the problem. We know that this is the, 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 the difficulties in the, in, the stability of the, in the stability of the world, in a way. And uh, I don't think that uh, these global institutions are taken uh, as seriously as they should. This graph. <laughs> they are not, you know, they are not, but I'm actually, I, I'm a really, 
Let me say that Branco, Branco has, a, has a blog, uh, which is uh, Global Inequality. I follow it. Uh, always has some intelligent comment to make. So it says, uh, if you have some time, take a look at it. It's an it's a interesting part yes, of <laughs> Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. It's Sade, Inspiring Futures. 